Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McCollum, coming to you on a clear, beautiful winter day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is author and streamer Janet Forbes. Janet is the CEO of World Anvil, an online world-building platform for role players and writers that she founded with her husband. She also streams Dungeons and Dragons for Wizards of the Coast, records writing and RPG advice on YouTube, and works as a freelance world builder and author. Janet and I talk about the genesis of World Anvil, writing for role-playing games, dealing with the rapid growth of a company, and her background as a classically trained musician and singer. We also talk about being a good game master, cooperative storytelling, and the occasional cultural differences you find playing RPGs. Enjoy my conversation with Janet Forbes. So have you have you always lived in Greece? No, absolutely not. Uh, I have lived in Several countries. Uh, <laughs> well, because I, I could have sworn, and I might have been wrong, but I could have sworn that when we've talked in the past that you were in the UK. Yeah, we were in London. Oh, okay. Oh, so there, that is a freaking story. We moved during the pandemic, oh. which was every bit as chaotic as it could possibly be, plus cats, plus hurricane, plus surgery. Oh, that's awful. It was just a lot all at once. So, um, yeah, we we moved our entire company. We packed up our belongings. And we had to continue service the entire day. I, I can I can tell you this story in as much detail as you like, but like every single bit of it is ridiculous. And like if you wrote it in a novel, people would be like, "This is stupid. This this doesn't happen." Yeah, guys, it happened. It's crazy. That's absolutely wild. Like, okay, so I'm curious, what possessed you to decide to move your entire company to Greece? Like, that's okay, just absolutely wild. It's a really good question. So we are still a UK company. Mm-hmm. Just. Like, because the company obviously is like a thing by itself. It's like a whole legal person on its own. Well, and you were, you were telling me right before we started that you guys are up to like 12 employees now yeah, and you're, you're, you've got a serious thing going on here. Yeah, it's nuts. So, um, basically World Anvil started by accident because I needed something to put my world building in. Because I had that Google document, you know, the yeah. one that's like 101 pages long and it crashes when you open it. It had gotten to the stage where my world building was so like linear and spread out that it had started to morph uncontrollably because I'd like reiterate information and then I'd change it in one place, but I wouldn't change it in another place. So it was just, it, it was broken, right? It mm-hmm. was just, it was not fine. And I went to Demetrius and I was like, I cannot write my book. I cannot do my world building. This is why. And I showed him this like outer circle of hellscape of a Google document. And he was like, of course, (laughs) of course, you cannot do this with the wrong tool. Let me make you something. Mm -hmm. So World Anvil was always supposed to be like, for me, 
to write my own stuff. That's actually really sweet and adorable. It's like like putting all other husbands to shame. What can I even say? <laughs> it's like the, the best love letter to me and like the biggest like F you to every other other husband in the universe. <laughs> my husband loves me so much that he made me an entire world anvil to do my world building and writing with. Yeah. So that's what world anvil started out as. And we were like, oh my God, we can totally use this for our RPG campaigns as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I started out as a writer, not as a game developer, but Dimmy and I, my husband and I have always been really into RPGs. So yeah, we were like, holy crap, we can use this for, for game worlds as well as novel worlds. That's really cool. And then we opened it up on Patreon, thinking like maybe maybe it will cover its own server costs and we could keep it public. Yeah. Because uh, a couple of our friends wanted to use it, and otherwise we'll just we'll just put it private and and we'll just use it ourselves, no biggie, whatever. And it exploded. We had a thousand Patreons in the first month, so we went from like obscurity to a thousand Patreons, and from there it just completely exploded. So I had another career. I was an opera singer. I wasn't. Did you not know this? Yeah, I used to be an opera singer. No, no, I I knew that. I just find it such a funny jump. Uh, it just it was insane. Yeah, it, just going from going from being an opera singer to suddenly running a like the nerdiest of your know, nerd websites, right? Like it cracks me up. I know, right? So I used to sit in the green room backstage in full, like full Elizabethan costume or whatever I was doing, um, writing, writing my novel. And then I would get the cast call and I would go on stage and sing whatever I was singing or play whatever I was playing. And then I'd come off stage and go back to writing my novel again. It was like, that's just like how I spent my time between being on stage was just writing for fun. Oh my gosh. And so I went from this, this life of like being a professional performer and traveling around the country and, you know all of this stuff, getting dressed up in costumes and pretending to be other people for a living. It's like, I I highly recommend it. Uh, To running World Anvil full-time, because we suddenly realized that this was really a full-time job for two people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then gradually we realized that it was getting quite big and it was a full-time job for more than two people. So we were sort of, we've always been very cautious. We always think of World Anvil as like our little baby, this small thing. Um, But we hit 1.5 million people in 2021. That's crazy. And at that point we were like, maybe we need some help. Maybe we should not be working like... 14, 15 hours a day. Maybe some people can help us. So did you just start hiring people over the last couple of years then? Yeah, absolutely. So Weld Anvil is only four years old. But um, yeah, we did a big hiring push in October last year. And we just brought a whole bunch of people on, which means like January has been insane because I've been like getting everybody up to speed. We have a marketing department now. I used to be the marketing department. It's amazing. Trying to trying to train everybody makes your job like 10 times harder for a brief window of time, right? Oh my God. Yeah. And there's no documentation because when you're one person, you don't need documentation. So anyway, that was, that was sort of the background of it. But so during the pandemic, or or I should say rather during the lockdown with still in a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> Demetrius and I were stuck at home. We we lived in London because Demetrius had a job full time. He was the CTO of a big company. Um, and I was an opera singer, which meant living in London with great transport links and good airports made a lot of sense. But you know, since 2018, we'd been stuck at home all day, working from home, running World Anvil. So we'd really been living in London for two years, but actually we'd just been living in our house. Like we didn't even see London. And at that point we were like- Yeah, that makes a big city far less attractive, I bet. Yeah, and and also London is, I think it's the most expensive place to live in Europe. We were like, why are we doing this to ourselves? It's horrible here. Our house is horrible. (laughs) 
Uh, it's really expensive to live here. We lived in a really horrible neighborhood as well, like really high crime rates, full of drug addicts. It was a really difficult place to live. And at a certain point, we were like, we don't have to do this. We we're, we work online. We only exist in pixels. Um, and that was the point where we were like, why, why are we still in England? Demetrius's family is from Greece. And so during the pandemic, we you know, we, we thought and thought about this. And we were like, actually, what if we just moved to be closer to Dimitri's family? We'll still be near family. We'll be in a country that's a lot nicer to live in and a lot less expensive to live in. A lot nicer weather. Oh, so much nicer weather. Great food, wonderful, friendly people. I cannot praise Greece enough. It is one of the most beautiful countries I have ever been to. But yeah, anyway, that's why we moved. But, um, oh, it was chaos. So I had surgery like two months, a month, six weeks before to have all of my wisdom teeth removed. Oh no, that's terrible. And it was supposed to be way earlier, but it got pushed because of the lockdown and everything. So I had a, like a full general anesthetic knock you out surgery and they removed all of my back teeth basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got really sick and the drugs were not working and they were like, oh, we've got to take you back into hospital. And this was when I was supposed to be packing up my house. Did you get, did you get dry socket? Yes, basically. It's brutal. Yeah. M- Michelle got that. It was, she was on her back for weeks. It was terrible. My entire face swelled up. I'm not kidding. Oh. It's a podcast. You can't see, but my my fa- my hands are inches from my face. Uh, I ended up calling this giant swell- swelling Moomintrude just because I had to like separate myself from it. <laughs> oh. It was the worst. And so I was super sick, which meant Dimmy was doing his job and my job, and nobody was packing up the house for this massive move that we were supposed to be doing. So anyway, chaos, that that happened. And then there was the massive chaos of trying to sort everything out, pack up all of our stuff, leave our house. The day we were ready to go, we got into the taxi. We had four enormous suitcases. My father-in-law and my brother-in-law had come over to help us so because they had extra baggage allowance and they're really strong. And because we were also traveling with cats mm. during the pandemic, we could only fly to Athens and then drive across the country to the city we were moving to. We couldn't fly directly. Yeah. So we got in the taxi. Oh. The next thing that happens is World Anvil goes down. It's six o'clock in the morning. While you're in the taxi. We get in the taxi. We shut the door. Demetrius' phone pings. World Anvil has gone down. World Anvil never goes down. Literally, like once every six months, we have a little bit of unscheduled downtime. We go, oh, crap, and we fix it. But no. We're in the taxi. It's 6 a.m. Our entire life is in, is in suitcases. But World Anvil is down. So, Demetrius, this is this is where it gets ridiculous. This is where it gets to the, like, if you write it in a book, nobody believes you. Demetrius opens the laptop, is trying to fix World Anvil. My father-in-law, who I love dearly, is yelling about something. We don't even know. We tell him to <laughs> shut up. The cat then in the cat carrier poops. <laughs> So the entire taxi now smells of cat poop. My brother-in-law gets the cat out of the cat carrier to try and um, fix the cat. The cat is now (laughs) rearranging it through the taxi. I am, meanwhile, on social media trying to inform everybody that, yes, World Anvil is down and, yes, we are fixing it. As we drive in the airport to move to a brand new country. (laughs) That is awful. (laughs) You cannot make this stuff up. So we get on the flight. We, we get there. It's it's as chaotic as you'd expect. We have to check cats. It's, it's not great. We land. We get in the car. We start driving. Boom. There's a hurricane. What? I didn't even know hurricanes happen in the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, one they called Hurricane Janus. 
It was the only big hurricane of 2020, but it happened the day that we arrived in our new country with our suitcases and our cats and everything else. It was well, and, and trying to drive across the country. And trying to drive across the country. It rained so much we had to stop because the, the car couldn't keep traction on the road. It was absolutely insane. And this is why when people... Uh, say things like, oh, it's too silly to happen. Like, I don't believe this thing in fiction. I'm like, no, 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 no. I have lived stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> so how long, so you've been there for how long now? We moved in 2020, September, 2020. So like a year and a bit. Okay. So a little over a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, enjoying it. Happy that you did it despite the disaster of moving day. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I now look at moving day. It's just like one of those formative experiences that almost happened to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it was so stressful. I kind of dissociated. But now it's funny. Right. It's a good anecdote now because you both survived and, it, you know, nothing like blew up. Right. Exactly. Everyone arrived in one piece. Everything was fine. And then, of course, we arrive. We have to check well down. Well, Danville is fine. The next day, we have to start working again. We don't have a house yet, but we still have a business to run. Oh man! Um, anyway, it was it was amazing. It was manic. The move was fantastic, but I still feel, in a way, I haven't like really experienced Greece yet because I've only experienced pandemic flavored Greece, which is really different. Right? Uh, are you guys near the coast at all? Mm. I know. I, I guess a lot of Greece is near the coast in some way, but yes. Yeah, so Thessaloniki is a big port. Mm-hmm. Actually, are you up for some? nerdiness like super nerdiness uh, yeah always thessaloniki uh was the home or the the sort of headquarters of galerius so it was a major roman center mm-hmm. for the eastern roman empire and um it's a major port as well so it's on the sea it's really really beautiful and from my balcony i can see mount olympus and all the water uh that is so freaking cool it's insane it's so beautiful oh uh, man that that sounds awesome <laughs> Yeah, it's really cool. Genuinely fantastic. Very cool. Well, man, that's that's cool. I I'm 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 glad that you guys kind of got out of kind of the city. You know, I've always I've always wanted to live in London, but in mm. one of those like live there for six months to experience London sort of things, I I don't really want to move there. <laughs> yeah, I think living in central London is amazing. We lived yeah. out in the suburbs, um, and as I say, like specifically the area we lived in was really horrible. Um, but the biggest issue with living in London is really that um, if you live in London, you work so much um, and the pace of life is so fast that it's actually quite hard to appreciate London. Like go there, spend two weeks as a tourist, go explore everything. It's beautiful as a city. But um, yeah, living there is a really different experience. <laughs> no, I bet. So now that you're kind of, you've got a bunch of employees and you're expanding the business, like, so what are your duties with World Anvil now? Like you're, you're the co-founder, you know, you, you're the director. Like, what does that mean? So it used to mean, you know, I'm the woman that manages all the advertising. I'm the woman that manages all the operations. So sort of CEO plus COO plus head of marketing. (laughs) And right now we're in this phase. Oh, it was insane. Oh, and the woman that makes the coffee, obviously. (laughs) So right now we're in this phase where I'm gradually devolving things to other people and delegating, which is wonderful. So Dimitri and I have a six month plan and a year plan. Are you ready for this? Yes. Our six month plan is we can go to the States. We've been invited to this gaming cruise to be um, like guests of honor to give lectures and stuff. So we will go to the States for two weeks uh, to the East Coast and World Anvil will be fine. That's it. Everybody else can handle it. (laughs) World Anvil is fine. Our year plan 
It's we will work nine to five like normal people and then have time for this life thing that we hear other people have. So essentially, uh, I will remain the CEO. I still do most of operations kind of stuff. But with regard to sort of daily grind and that kind of stuff, I'm going to be doing less. I'm going to be doing more sort of product management, product direction, and less sort of contacting influencers and trying to arrange the, like placements and stuff, which is literally what I was doing before. Right. And that's uh, like, because I was curious about that, because you're very prolific in terms of doing stuff. Uh, you've worked on RPGs, you work on your own fiction writing, uh, you write articles for World Anvil. Um, you've got a lot of creative things that you're doing in addition to running this massive business. And, you know, I I kind of struggle with running my own small one-man business enough and balancing that against actually having to be a creative professional. And I'm like, I, I'm looking at your kind of, your, your CV and going, what the crap? How do you, there's not enough time in the, in the, in life to do all this? Like, how do you balance that at all? I mean, and you already mentioned working 15 hour days. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, it's really tough. Don't get me wrong. I, uh, funnily enough, I had an interview on Saturday with, uh, Satine Phoenix and Jameson Stone from Apotheosis Studios. And we have this whole bard challenge going on. So of course we're talking about bards and they have this amazing battle of the bards, uh, book that's coming out. So we sort of tied everything together. And one of the things we talked about with bards which I think is true of us as well, is there's just a little bit of creative madness, like a little <laughs> bit of this sort of crazy drive that we have. And uh, I think that's the thing that makes you write instead of watching Netflix in the evening. That's the thing that, you know, um, makes you say yes to projects that you really don't have time to do, but you can't pass it up. Like yeah, I mentioned before, I was the the lead author on the Dark Crystal RPG. So I just moved, like this was in 2020, end of 2020. They wrote, uh, Riverhorse Games wrote to me and said, would you uh, send us a sample scene? We'd like to buy a sample scene off you to see if you'd be a good fit for this project, for this Dark Crystal RPG. And I said to Demetrius, I said, I, I don't have time to write this book. I, I don't have to, I want to, but I, I have to say no. And he said, no, you shouldn't say no. It's a great opportunity. So I wrote the sample scene and somehow they really liked it because they asked me to write the rest of the book. So then I wrote a hundred more scenes. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, so I was writing, you know, five to 10 scenes a week. That's 5,000 to 10,000 words a week on top of my job mm -hmm. and 5,000 to 10,000 a week uh, words of finished lean RPG copy. Which is a very particular skill because I've tried this and I've mentioned it on the podcast before that I did with my own little powder major rpg and it was way harder for me to do that than it was to write actual narrative yeah it's a really different skill so you know i think one of the things i've really learned from world anvil is the way to write a tweet is different than the way you write a blog post it's different than the way you write a tutorial or documentation it's different than the way that you would write a book or a short story and different than how you write an rpg um and i think that's sort of that's something i really have learned from this world anvil experience and from you know, doing all of these different things is it's taught me a lot about writing specifically for purpose. And that was really helpful when I started the RPG because RPGs are a weird combination of documentation. Like you are trying to show people not just your vision for the scene, like there's a hut, there's, um, I 
Are you familiar with the Dark Crystal at all? A, a little bit. It's it's been so long. I never I never watched this the prequel. Was it that came out? Yeah, the Netflix show. Yeah. But you know, when I was a kid, I definitely saw Dark Crystal. It's been a very long time. So there's this super creepy character who actually, spoiler alert for the Netflix series, dies in the Netflix series. But he's a hunter. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I created a scene for his cabin. So on the one hand, I want to get across all of this stuff that is about his cabin. Like, you know, it's, it's creepy. It's haunted. It feels wrong somehow. And there's a lot of stuff in the books about, and I mean, in the whole sort of volume of work, because it's, it's and comics and, um, and books and, and a board game and a video game. There's, there's a lot of IP already established. So, you know, trying to get across the, the feeling of this place where, you know, when something is discordant with the world, that's how you know it's bad. So it's it's almost out of tune. And how this feels and how you can then describe this to your players. Because the person I'm talking to is the GM, but the GM then needs to use this for their players. So I'm actually, I'm not talking to the reader. I'm talking to the player through the reader. And then at the same time, I'm trying to tell him how to play the scene and how the mechanics work. Right. You're, you're trying to accomplish several different things with a small piece of, of I imagine, quite tight writing. Um, and you're trying to kickstart a narrative for other people, yeah. which is such a strange way of looking at it. Yeah. And basically, you're providing story ingredients. Uh, with River Horse Game, we call them cogs, essentially. So it's almost the idea of like cogs and levers and things, but in story terms that players can interact with and the way that they interact with them, the sequence they interact with them and who they are then affects what happens, right? Because if they're one kind of person, maybe something else happens. So packing all of that into a hundred word, so yeah, into like a, a little scene basically and trying to get across so many different things, it's really intense right right definitely i i remember one of the things that kind of struck me when you kind of first uh got in touch with me and you were kind of showing off world anvil to me for a writer rather than for uh, like a you know somebody developing rpgs and things like that uh i should say for a novelist rather than a writer um but um when you're kind of showing that off for to me i the thing that struck me immediately was how much you guys very much put effort into trying to capture the complexity of 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 world building for other people um and and i find that kind of fascinating because when i'm when i'm writing a narrative when i'm world building i'm i'm world building for myself you know people everything is very controlled you know what i put on the page is what the you know reader gets you know they and they they get their own they kind of come at it from different ways and they bring their own perspective and stuff but it's still the adventure is there like there's plot beats and everything yeah but uh, man, when it comes to something like an RPG, there's so much more complexity to, um, you know, what is a character, what is a, what is the player going to bring to this? What is the the uh, the game master going to bring to this? What is all of this, all these moving parts? And I really liked how you guys really tried to capture all that, and that you're kind of constantly developing and changing and trying to be better about all the moving pieces that go into world building for the sake of world building but also world building for the sake of other people yeah absolutely and i would say you know even as a novelist like when i write a book i'll build out the concept and i'm a big plotter so i'll I'll plot and part of that plot is world building right because if there's an organization well who the crap are they if there's a you know a, a character or a macguffin what is it why is it important why do we care right yeah so there is world building inherent in i believe all three pillars character and plot and setting. And so I build some of that. 
But then I start writing and I'm like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if? Yeah. And then I go on and I'm like, oh my God. And then that ties to that. I had no idea. So even though I've plotted, all of these ideas will come to me. And if I don't write them down, if I don't you know, establish them, then when I do draft two or draft three, you know, I'll get to, I'm like, oh, I had an idea about that. What was it? And I won't be able to find it. And there is no more. It's like an itch in your brain. <laughs> the feeling that you've forgotten something that was cool and you cannot find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that happens to me. And that's really one of the things that, you know, I know it's so well, it's so frustrating. We want to stop that happening. Oh, no, that's, that's funny. It's, um, it's cool. So did you kind of, did you, was that your first experience, but kind of being a lead writer for something like that? Yeah, it was actually, it was, um, incredibly exciting. Since then, I've uh, I've done a bunch of other bits and pieces. I've written adventures for Infinite Black. I've done some work for Cobalt Press. And uh, I did a whole, well, that was really fun. Uh, I did a whole uh, world building section for Tidebreaker, which styles itself as a cinematic RPG. Mm-hmm. And essentially, um, the, the creator came to me and said, basically, you're a world building person. I need a setting creation table um, that will work for this. And it can be anything as long as you can like do epic things and shoot or stab somebody, the setting works. And I was like, okay, challenge accepted. And I crafted this whole table, which is basically, you know, cinematic trailers where they're like in a world of, you know, epic, gritty fantasy where, yeah. you know, our characters struggle against themes of remorse and found family. I cre- basically created this as a role table so that it has sort of, you know, uh, it's a D66 table. So it's got like 36 genres and you know, 36 themes and 36 sort of, uh, we called them adventure elements. So pirates or dinosaurs or cowboys, but then you can have like pirates in space. Cowboys in space, dinosaurs in space, dinosaurs in the Wild West, this kind of stuff. So, you know, you've got the setting table, the adventure element table and the theme table. And then you can start creating basically any setting you like. And the ta- the, the role table will spit it out as a cinematic trailer text. So you can present it to your players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was really fun as a project. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, So make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'm I'm always fascinated by things like that that are very kind of open-ended in terms of uh, the player can, or the player or the reader or whoever can create whatever it is they want and then, you know, kind of fiddle with that because it often, I mean, I, I imagine that it, it immediately runs into the fact that there it's the depth has to come from the player. The, the, the depth isn't coming from like the game itself. It has to come from the player. And, and it's, so that's a different kind of approach, but it's also kind of fascinating just in terms of d- creating like a palette for a player to use and then just saying, go wild, you know, like, like our, our hands are out of this now. It's your thing. And uh, I don't know, that's that's kind of that's kind of cool. 
It is really cool. I think I think it's something that we all do, you know, as we read stories, as we watch TV. If you go to like, I think it's uh, our head canon, basically, that is like all the different head canons, the sort of self-created law surrounding real law that just sort of fills in the pieces. Essentially, we all do this. We all sort of make assumptions, have preconceptions about the settings that we explore. And I think that RPGs just take that one step further. It's like, right, here's what you know. Off you go. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I sit in occasionally. I've got some old high school buddies that have a and d game every week and I sit in on it occasionally. I don't I don't play because I just have no creative energy for it, but I'll kind of just log into the Zoom chat and just hang out and watch and listen to that and watch them kind of play. And it's always fun. It's fun to, you know, listen to the jokes they come up with, stuff like that. But something uh, they've been playing through various uh, kind of pre-made campaigns. And something that kind of struck me was how much wiggle room there is even in a pre-made campaign that has all the character all the npcs are all sketched out for you all of the settings are sketched out for you everything is there there's still so much wiggle room for the players to kind of kind of do whatever it is they want rather than uh you know it because you get the idea maybe like when when i first hear about like a like a dnd campaign that's pre-made i think ah that's kind of like playing a video game that's on rails right like mm. like there's no options you just do whatever the video game's telling you to do at the time and yeah it's yeah the the term we use actually funnily enough is railroading railroading yeah, yeah. and 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 it's funny cuz it's not as much railroading as you'd expect and I, I'm kind of, I was kind of shocked by that when I realized that. I think that really depends on your GM, and it sounds like you, you're listening to a really good one because there are GMs who are like, "This is what it says in the manual, so this is what we will do." <laughs> and I know that you'll laugh. So I used a German, silly fake German accent there, right there, but um, there are cultural differences between um how people approach RPGs. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my friend Myri, who runs this big YouTube channel called Orkenspalter TV. Um. And she tells me that when she plays with groups in Germany, that's how they play. They play together to discover the adventure and it's a social experience and they follow the clues and they follow the plot points and they do what they're supposed to do and they get to the end of the story. And that is a perfectly valid way of enjoying D&D. But my experience has more been as I play a lot of brogues rogue-like characters so that's like a bard rogue mm-hmm. i also play a lot of paladins who are secretly bard rogues because i just i love just love to be mischievous it's just i can't even and so generally what happens is somebody often it's me will end up with some crazy out of the box idea or some weird approach to something or they'll roll really high on something to charm or you know some social encounter was not supposed to happen but they rolled so well and the GM will say, yeah, all right, let's see what happens. And that is the magic of D&D and, and other tabletop RPGs, because it's it's that sort of like, okay, I've got the book. I know what's supposed to be happening right now, but you've made a really good point. And I want to say yes and, or yes, but, rather than just saying, no, it can't happen. He tells you nothing. He sends you out of his shop or whatever. Yeah. So I think the more creative and uh, the more willing to improvise your DM is, the more you can have these kinds of experiences where, you know, it's a group exploration of a story and a group exploration of imagination rather than just we followed the book and we did the clues and we did what we were supposed to do and then we hit the man at the end and now we finished and it was lots of fun. Um, so that's really two styles on that. And while they're both valid, I prefer I prefer the chaos one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's a funny way of looking at it because I, like with, 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 uh, 
RPGs, when you're rolling dice to kind of determine how something affects something else, I I actually quite like the uh, inevitable chaos of high and low rolls because it reflects real life in a way that, you know, it's in an abstract way, but in a way that like sometimes the most charming person puts their foot in their mouth. And sometimes the biggest idiot comes up with the most brilliant, simple plan. It's just that that's that's kind of how real life works. And I like that a lot. I play on a, a show every other Friday. Um, it is a testament to how much I love the GM that I said no to this show three times. And yet I am still playing on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we call them drama dice when they're very high and very low. And I mentioned again that we were talking to Satine the other day. And uh, she, she says rolling for one is rolling for story. And I could not agree more. Like those are the moments where thing go, things go like either so epically badly that something interesting is about to happen or so epically well that something interesting is about to happen. Like yeah. not only is it realistic, I refer to you the anecdote of when I moved, lots of bonds <laughs> rolled that day, but uh, it also like that's what moves the story. Like people screwing up moves the plot forward. We know this as writers as much as we know this as, as, as game masters. So yeah, or people doing things so spectacularly well that it sort of unlocks a story point. It unlocks something that can come later. So something crazy happens that you didn't expect, but it's so memorable. Like that's that's universal for storytelling. Yeah. Twenties and ones, man. That's that's a good story. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's that's quite funny. Man, so and you because you also do streaming as well, like and that yeah. that that's like another thing because I I tried to get into streaming on Twitch like gosh three years ago something like that and I you know and I was trying to be a little bit more regular about it and man and I was just doing video games video games that I play normally and it was such a weird thing to to like do it for I don't know maybe four or five months mm. and and get to the point where I was kind of like. Uh, man, this is like, it's no, it's neither my fun video game time, nor is it my fun creative time. It's something different. And I don't have a finger on what that is. And, and so, and so I kind of just stopped doing it. Um, And I I ended up doing uh, kind of streaming for uh, a uh, show that I was on for quite a while for Typecast RPG. And, and that was, gosh, we were, I did that for like three years, I think. And, uh, and on, on a regular basis. And again, it was one of those things where it was like, not quite my kind of creative, uh, you know, writing time, but not quite playing with my friends because there's an audience and it's, it, it, it kind of sucked uh, such a strange, different energy out of me that I, I kind of amazed when people can do streaming on a regular basis, but also have lots of other things that they're working on. Yeah. I mean, streaming's a really interesting space. And um, I think for me, there's two things there that makes it easier. The first is having a partner to do it with because streaming by yourself is talking into a void. <laughs> and it, it doesn't matter how wonderful and lovely and responsive the chat is. If it's just you talking, it's weird. Like, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I talk to myself a lot, but um, yeah, doing it in front of other people feels feels like socially in, inept somehow. So um, there is that aspect of streaming. But I think the other aspect of streaming is that at least the way we do it, either I stream as a performer, like I, I streamed for Wizards of the Coast and I've streamed for Modifius and Weird Games. And now I, I do the show with with um, my friend Desozzi Gamer. 
But for me, that's performance. And that's that was my old job, right? Like, you know, I put on some makeup, I become somebody else, and that's my job. So when I'm doing Ding D streams, it's literally just like, oh, it's like opera, but I'm not singing. No big, whatever. I love this. You know, and it's it's improvised and it's fun. And, you know, I'm working with other actors so I can do weird stuff and they'll bounce off it and then I'll bounce off what they do. So it's really, I don't, I don't see it as creative time i see it as performance time and that's something that's just like nothing for me i'm like yeah this, this is the job no big honestly i should have made that leap kind of in my notes but i didn't uh that kind of you starting off with opera and performance and things like that honestly uh, that, that that makes way more sense now that i think about it uh that you can kind of you can kind of have an aspect of your kind of performance life that you end up leaving behind for running a website uh that's quite cool. Yeah, I, I really love it. And, you know, there's a lot I miss about the performing world. There's a lot I don't miss about the performing world. But there's a lot I miss about the performing world. And it's really fun to get to do these kinds of things and, you know, put that hat back on sometimes and be like, oh, yeah, this was my job. I love doing this. I love, you know, being a kooky character or a serious character or just somebody else and improvising with that. The other thing that we do a lot with streams um, we do a lot of educational streams. So we um, mm -hmm. do a lot of sort of seminars and this kind of thing. We, we work with Pro Writing Aid. We've done stuff with Free Cell University. And, you know, we've done these sort of guest placements in a lot of places. And uh, that's always really enjoyable because I'm talking about what I love, which is world building and writing and gaming. And, you know, I'm, I'm putting together things. So I have a background in teaching as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm also flexing my teaching muscles as I'm making these sort of this didactic content that's really helping people and answering questions. So that's sort of another aspect of it where, again, I'm sort of using stuff from my old the life, the before times to, you know, help inform what I'm doing now. And then I think the final aspect of it is we have an amazing community. So we do community streams once a week where we answer questions about World Anvil and writing and gaming and we, we play a drinking game and we, we read, we do live article reads. So we'll read out five minutes of an article and, and give like live comments and live critique, uh, little tiny edits that we see. Generally, we just love them because our community is amazing and they make beautiful articles. And again, it's, it's a really nice way to get to interact with the community. But I do it with a with a co-host. I do it with Demetrius. I think doing that by myself would be exhausting. Yeah. And it just makes it so much easier when you can bounce off somebody else and you get that energy. I think that's that's I would always recommend that if you're if you're streaming. Like don't stream. Don't stream alone. It's dangerous to go alone, guys. <laughs> well, and because it that that kind of two person thing can, you know, it's like a host co-host kind of thing, right? Like it you're like you said, you have somebody to bounce things off of, but also there's days when you're not gonna be on. And somebody and the other person can kind of carry the load for you. And uh, and you can do the same for them when they have a day that they're a bit off. Yeah, totally. It also means from a technical perspective, somebody else helps you as you're like, if you have to fossick with the live stream, then somebody else can talk. Yeah. Or if I'm setting up a live raffle, then Demetrius can, you know, talk about World Anvil updates while I'm like desperately trying to make the streaming program work. Right. Like it's it's nicer to, to have that as well. Yeah. I talked to um, Mark Humes about, of uh, High Rollers D&D a little bit about the idea of community building. Yeah. And and it's something that I've always kind of struggled with. And and with with kind of, you know, epic fantasy worlds, you see community building tends to at least as far as I've seen. I, I think probably this is changing, but as far as I've seen it tends to come from the community rather than the author. Mm. Like the author, if they are they participate, it's because they kind of were invited in by a community that already developed. But I, I think that that's changing a little bit. And I 
I always want to be like, oh, you know, maybe I should put some bunch of time and effort into really building up the community around, you know, my writing. And, but it's such like a, it requires huge amounts of energy and it requires huge amounts of time. And, and I'm, that community building is something I find fascinating, but almost untouchable to myself. Uh. <laughs> so I, I've actually done a little seminar about this and the way that communities form essentially is they form around ideas. Mm -hmm. They form around ideas and commonality. So the World Anvil community, for example, forms around not just World Anvil, but it forms around a love of rich world settings. And that then, of course, extends into writing, it extends into gaming. You know, we we do seminars on, on all of these things. But everybody in our community loves world building. And the reason that they joined our community is that World Anvil's whole mission, like the whole mission statement of World, of world Anvil is help people world build and help them take that world building and make things that people can enjoy with it, like books and games and video games and comics. And Jesus, people are doing a lot of things with World Anvil. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, interactive, choose your own adventures, all sorts of amazing stuff. But um, essentially, that was really, you know, the, our community did start by accident because we were making a thing and people were using it. And we had a lot of dialogue about essentially, you know, how do you want to use it? What do you want to see? How can we make this better? But it flourished because people love world building and people, it wouldn't have got bigger unless we'd given people their own space within that bubble. Because I think the, the mistake people make with community building is that they think it's like, it's a conversation between you and a whole bunch of people. But actually it's a conversation with a whole bunch of people and you're in the room and people are listening to what you're saying. But there has to be other dialogue as well, because otherwise it's just an announcement. Yeah, you want those people to all be talking to each other about stuff um, rather than listening to you or talking to you or whatever. Um, and I think then the trick is, and this is something that we did early, is finding ways to help people communicate in a structured way and help people build commonalities, because that's how people work. Like if you sit two people randomly in a train they won't talk to each other but if you put two people at a very specific convention well they already have something in common and there's something to say do you know what i mean they're more likely to start up a conversation so create shared experiences we we did this with uh world building challenges early on um where we create these sort of shared goals lots of people are creating the same thing and they're discussing it and that was really helpful for us in sort of starting conversations, building this sort of commonality and this dialogue. And then, of course, that just sort of naturally spiraled out. That's that's very cool. These are all things that I just wouldn't even think of. And and it's uh, it's such a it's such a I, I often think of myself as having a very well-rounded skill set for what I do for a living. But I, I, I actually quite enjoy running into ideas and things that just are so foreign to me that I just kind of go, wait, you, you do that? You can do that. Uh, and that, that, that kind of thing is one of them uh, that I just I don't really quite grasp it, but I can appreciate how effective and interesting it is. Yeah, I, um, I did this big world building panel a while ago um, in which I had the worst imposter syndrome you could possibly imagine. It was like. Uh, the biggest names in RPG. And then for some reason, I was there chairing the panel. I don't know how that happened. Um, this is in GaryCon in 2021, I think. And I was I was sat there sort of talking to these people. And it happened to come up that I had experience in archaeology. It happened to come up that I speak five languages. It happened to come up this, that, and the other. And at the end, people were like, are you, do you really do all this? And I was like, yes, I am the argument for multiclassing. <laughs> I am not a min-maxer, but I sure as hell multi-class. 
Um, and I think as a storyteller, it's something that's that's been really useful for me, um, you know, to have these sort of little bits of knowledge from many, many places. But uh, I think part of that as well is just, you know, talking to other people and being like, oh, my God, I would never have thought of that. That's so cool. You know, like there's always more. What, what languages do you speak? Oh, okay. So when I say I speak five languages, what I mean is I dabble on the shallow end of five languages. <laughs> I <laughs> Because I used to be an opera singer. <laughs> I suspect that's most people that speak multiple languages. <laughs> so um, I speak English, <laughs> naturally. Um, <laughs> some might say the correct English, um, but maybe we would go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, I lived in Holland for six years, uh, mm-hmm. when I, which is where I studied. So I speak some Dutch. I now live in Greece, so I speak some Greek. Mm-hmm. As an opera singer, I had to learn, of course, French, which included Old French, Italian, and German. Um, and I also learned Latin at school. So we're, we're getting up in the numbers. It's it's kind of more than five, but five is a nice round number. Yeah. But the other thing is, the more languages you learn, the more you start to realize that actually you can pick these things up. So I went to Finland. Uh, we were invited to give a lecture at Trakon in Finland. And Finland Finnish is notoriously difficult as a European language because it's not connected to anything. It's not Germanic. It's not uh, it's not a Romance language like Italian or Spanish. It's it's a completely different language root. It's a little bit connected to Estonian and it's a little bit connected to Turkish of all things. There's another story there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Um, and so I went to Finland and I was like, I will understand nothing. And I walked around and I was like, can I understand Finnish? I can read stuff. Like I picked up a sandwich and I knew what was in it and I knew what all the signs said and I could understand the train announcements. And then I realized it was not Finnish after an entire day of thinking I could understand Finnish. <laughs> I could understand Swedish <laughs> because it's like Dutch. I didn't yeah. even know which language it was. But I could get around because it's close enough to Dutch. So when you start dabbling in languages, it just 
these things spiral what can i say that that's that is quite funny yeah yeah languages is something that always has intimidated the crap out of me i have a very poor kind of recollection i'm i have very bad focus like because i know learning a language you need to memorize things you need to focus you need to memorize you need to talk to other people um so i've i've always had like kind of the combination of deficits that make languages very difficult for me but it's uh my my sister-in-law is argentine okay. and uh and we used to when i lived in ohio we'd hang out with my brother and and his wife all the time and it's funny cuz from the very beginning i could usually understand most of what they were saying when they spoke spanish to each other and i realized that it was because i knew my brother so well that i knew kind of his vocal tics yeah. and i knew kind of the way his the cadence of his sentences and and I kind of I had a, a tiny bit of experience with Spanish before, like the littlest school Spanish. Um, but it was it was such a weird realization to be like, oh, because I know this person so well and I have the smallest amount of experience, I can understand this. You know, generally, it, language is such a bizarre thing because it is both very structured, but also very flawed and human. And and there's various like aspects that you have to kind of, you know, approach it from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when you're writing about language, this is something that a lot of us forget. They're like, you speak the language or you do not speak the language or you speak only a tiny bit to comic effect. Like this is the trope, right? Either you're fluent or you say nothing. Um, but there's such a sort of in-between space. Like I am by no means fluent in Greek right now. I, I do shop Greek. I could mm -hmm. not do philosophy Greek, for example. And so, but still, when I'm listening to conversations, I, I know what's going on. Like I can't say anything intelligent in Greek, but I, I'm fully aware of what's, what's being discussed. And then if I, if I lose concentration for a moment, it's gone and I've got no idea. And it's like, it goes from, I, I, I know what they're talking about, but I don't know the specifics, to they may as well be speaking gobbledygook. It's really weird. The language is, is just very, very bizarre that way, I think. And I will say that I, I used to be like you, I used to be sort of terrified. I learned French in school and I always considered myself to be very bad at it. Like I got okay marks, I could, I could speak it, I could work with it, but I, I didn't feel comfortable at all. And it wasn't until I moved to Holland to do my degree and suddenly realized that I was living in a country where, yeah, okay, everybody spoke English, but how rude is it to move to a country and like not even try to learn the language? That's how I felt anyway. Yeah. So I, I started to learn and I was like, oh, okay, it just, I can, you know, I can say thank you well and ausgeblieft and, you know, I can, I can ask for things. And then it, it just grows from there. And I think it's with language, if you do a bit and a bit and a bit, it's very hard. If you get pushed in at the deep end, you figure it out pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's such a funny thing because like Americans kind of have this idea that's not necessarily our fault because we are so isolated from much of the rest of the world just by geography. Um, but we have this idea that English is the only language. You know, you speak English and and, you know, oh, yeah, maybe we all kind of can maybe a tiny bit of Spanish, but like that's it. I, I always kind of base kind of my worlds very around European things because mm -hmm. I find that very interesting. And it's kind of classic epic fantasy. Right. But I something I always from the very beginning w with my characters was thinking, uh, trying to think about language in terms of when you have sm lots of smaller countries rather than one massive geographical country that all speaks own language when you have lots of smaller countries that speak different languages everybody especially if you live near borders and things like that everybody is going to be at least a little multilingual 
And and that's just a thing. Like, I, it's probably a lot more rare that you run into people who lit, can only speak one language and and have no functional knowledge of their neighbor's language. Um, and I, I don't know, I like that. I think it's very interesting. I think it's kind of an interesting way of uh, kind of approaching world building. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that uh, that certainly... I think that certainly used to be more the case. Like now with, you know, the, the proliferation of, of English as a language, it's it's becoming the case that like you speak your language and you speak English. Yeah. You probably don't speak anything else. So lang- English has become the lingua franca, ironically. <laughs> but I will say in England as well, it is very unusual to meet people who speak more than one language. Really? Unless they moved from somewhere else. But um, my family is super, super weird. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't fit that mold. But, um, yeah, in, in general, you know, the average person on the speak speaks English and nothing else. Yeah, I, uh, I find that interesting. I, I think I, I mean, I, 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 do you think that that is a, a British thing yes. or do you think it is a you think it is a British thing? So, it look, as I said, in a lot of European countries these days, the second language is English. Right. So yeah. you learn your language and then you also learn English. Um, and if you don't learn English formally, for whatever reason, you learn English because you play video games and you re- you watch TV, right? Like Demetrius is Greek and he picked up the AD&D, so second edition D&D books, mm-hmm. I think when he was seven. And his friends said, these are really cool. You have the best English because you play with computers. So you have to be the GM. And that is how Demetrius became a GM. That is how Demetrius learned Greek. Demetrius was not a good school student at all. He is fiercely smart. But he was a horrible school student. He learned Greek. He learned English because he wanted to play D&D and the books were only in English. Yeah. And so I think most people at this point, if they speak a second language, which most younger people do, they speak English. And then if they speak a third language, it might be, you know, the neighbor language or something. Yeah. I My first trip to Poland, I remember uh, getting into a cab with uh, my translator um, and we were just chatting away and everything. And I was asking, OK, how... How much like English is is acceptable here? Because I'm terrible with languages, and uh, and she just kind of laughed at me. And she's like, "If you see someone who looks younger than thirty, they almost certainly speak English well enough to communicate very easily with you. If you see somebody over forty, don't even bother." <laughs> it was such a funny like way of like, "Oh man, this generational impact of these kind of things." Yeah, absolutely. In Greece, it's like that in rural areas. So in the city, most people can kind of manage some English. Which is great because, as I say, my Greek, it's its okay, I can manage. But if they ask me really complicated questions, I get stuck and I panic. Um, but uh, yeah, younger people, no problem. Uh, my father's name is Hamish. There is no her in the Greek alphabet. So um, I went to get my injection and they were like, okay, who are you? What's your name? What's your father's name? Trying to identify me in the in the Greek system. And, and I said, oh, okay, I'll write down my father's name. No, no, just tell me Hamish. And I was waiting for the Hamish. <laughs> kind of noise where they went, what the crap is that? And he was like, oh, Hamish, no worries. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a generation thing. Because when I said this to like ladies in their 50s who worked in the the bureaucracy office, they were were just their eyes crossed and they laid an egg. It was bad. They were not happy with this this name. But um, the 25-year-old guy in the the injection center was fine with it. Oh, that's, that's, it's so weird how those things change sometimes very quickly right you know i guess in our kind of very multicultural multi uh very connected world like it's no surprise that a language ended up this uh, english in this case 
a language ended up kind of being a global language. Well, in the, um, I'm going to be boring again. In the ancient world, it was Greek. Yeah. So in the ancient world, Greek was the language of trade and Greek was the language of sailors. So it wasn't so much like who, who, where you were from. It was like, you know, if you, if you are trading, if you are in a trade port, this is a language you must know because this is how you sell your wheat and your olive oil and your fish and everything else. And then, of course, you know, we have the term lingua franca. That's because for a very long time, France, uh, French was the, the language that everybody spoke. Yeah. So these things, they, they change, you know, and it changes in different circles. So, you know, I, I don't know how nerdy I can be. Richard III was the first English king in 1473 or something to actually translate the law into the vernacular, so into English rather than into Latin, mm -hmm. so that normal people could actually read the law, because before then, nobody could. Well, Richard the Lionheart famously couldn't actually speak English, right? Or they think that he couldn't speak English, he was, he, or he wasn't very good with it, because um, he was very French, wasn't he? I'm trying to remember this. I'm going to be honest. I don't know a lot about Richard the Lionheart because he's not really my period. Right. The music of Richard the Lionheart was never something that I really looked at. It was a <laughs> bit early for me. So I'm always a bit like, I know about this era because I know what it sounded like. That's okay. So I, I actually really wanted to go back to that because I, I find yeah. this, I find the opera singer thing incredibly interesting. Um, and, uh, and I, I, how did you get started becoming an opera singer? All right. So this is a, this is a really weird story. And you must promise not to laugh. No, no, like, I'm not even kidding. I uh, I was an opera singer and I was a specialist in historical music. So like 18th century opera, basically. That's mainly what I did. And so then some like super modern stuff, like the weird modern music. That was kind of my jam. It's like the old stuff, really modern stuff. But opera singers sort of bloom quite late. Like you don't sing opera at 16. Nobody sings opera at 16. Like the voice is not mature yet. So when I was... Uh, student from the age of 12 or something. Uh, I went to a special music school, but my main, main instrument was recorder. I'm not even kidding. You know, the torture stick, the one that you played in primary school? Yep. That. And I then went on to conservatoire playing recorder. And I went on to do a master's degree in recorder um, because it used to be an instrument that was quite prominent. Uh, there's a lot of really virtuosic music written for it. Um, a lot of really beautiful, heartbreakingly gorgeous music written for it. There's a bit in Samuel Pepys's diary where he talks about in the theatre, the moment where the angel came on, onto stage and it was sort of lifted onto stage by some stage machinery. The musicians all played the recorders because it was such a heavenly sound. And he, he wept. He felt like he'd been transported to heaven as he heard these sort of beautifully, perfectly tuned recorders and saw this angel appear on stage. It is an instrument that can be really beautiful. Unfortunately, we put it in the hands of children and then we say, gosh, it sounds awful. Why would anyone play this? Well, and that's, and I, I, I maybe it's probably the same exact experience with you guys. Cause it sounds like the same experience. Cause like for me, like you know, as an American, you look, go, mm -hmm. wait, a recorder. You mean the thing I played for two months when I was, you know, 11 or whatever. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a strange, I, gosh, I, I, everything I could say sounds vaguely insulting. Uh, because because that's the experience you get of of this instrument. But that is, I actually find that incredibly interesting. I'll shoot you some recordings from the time when I was still working, and you can like I, bang it in the podcast or something. I've got some stuff on SoundCloud. Honestly, I would love to hear something like that because, like I said, my only experience is being one of fifty 
fifth graders yeah. trying to play this instrument very badly. Yeah, mangling it horribly. And that's the only experience I have with it. Yeah, absolutely. So that was that was sort of my main gig, as it were. And then I did I always did singing on the back. And then when I finished my master's degree, I went to do more training and I, I, I studied privately essentially as a singer because I kept getting hired as a singer. It was really weird. I'd, I'd like show up and I'd be like, oh, I play the recorder and I sing. And they'd be like, right, audition. And I'd audition. And they'd be like, we love the recorder playing, but we want to hire you as a singer. And I'd be like, all right, cool, fine. And so I sort of moved more towards opera and more towards that space. I don't know how familiar you are with opera. Not much. My, my wife knows it a bit more than I do, quite a lot more than I do. Okay. Uh, do you know the magic flute? Generally, yes. if somebody knows an opera, it's that one. You know, there's a there's a, the witch in the magic flute sings that really high stuff. Mm-hmm. That's me. Oh, dang. That's what I do. It's a really unusual voice type. So it turned out that there was like a little niche that I could do. And I had all of this acting experience because I'd always been into acting. I'd done some shows, some sort of semi-professional stuff. And so like all of a sudden people were like, we can't find people who sing like you and can act like you. So we want to hire you. And I was like, oh, dang, this is a this is a career that I've, I've found myself in. It's kind of a theme in my life where I'll be like, I'm doing this thing. And somebody else says, you would be really good at this other thing. And I go, all right, that sounds fun. Let's give it a try. That's how I ended up writing the Dark Crystal RPG. That's how I ended up starting World Anvil. It's, you know, people come to me and say, hey, what if you did this thing? And if I think it sounds fun, I'll say, all right, let's give it a try. Do you do you feel like some of those skill sets that you kind of acquired as a musician, do you feel like they continue to carry you forward? Definitely, definitely. A lot of being a musician is learning to learn and learning to regulate your learning. And um, I feel like that's always like held me in really good stead because essentially, you know, as, as a musician, you have what an hour a week with your teacher and the rest of the time you're just practicing by yourself. So really what your teacher is doing is teaching you to teach yourself as you practice and teaching you how to help yourself get better because realistically they're not there all the time, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly the same with writing. Like you go to your editor and you say, you know, make this better. And they say, okay, well, in general, I'm seeing this, this, and this, and then there are these problems. And then you have to go and figure it out. When you run a business and things happen, you have to figure it out. I once, we have a, we have a 30 second cinematic animated trailer for World Anvil. And it's like booms and explosions and a hammer that falls. I made that in one day, never having animated anything before, because someone came to us and said, we need an animated trailer for this this thing you're involved in. And we didn't have one. So I sat down and learned After Effects in one day. Wow. Because I had to. And because in a, in a day, there wasn't even enough time to ask somebody else to do it, to commission somebody else to do it. Like there was, I just, I just had to sit down and do it. Yeah. Um, and so with a lot of these things, it's been, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of learning. I've learned a lot of really interesting stuff and a lot of really boring stuff about product management and design and customer segmentation and, you know, value propositions, which is great because, you know, I I now know this stuff. It's really useful tools to have at my disposal. But I learned it because I had to. And I just, you know, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And I'm hearing these words. I need to figure out what they mean right now. So you go, you do the research, you read it, and then the next day you know more Dang. and you can do your job better, whatever that job is. I, I really wish that when I was younger, I had engaged in that idea of learning to learn, right? I, I never engaged with that. I always found school to be tedious and frustrating and not, not what I wanted to be doing. 
Um, and, and creative writing classes were always a breeze for me because I wanted to be doing them. And, but if I always had the problem of, if I don't want to be doing this, I'm not going to do it, or I'm not going to engage with it well. And I, I wish I had had that hammered into my head earlier in my life. I think it would have been very nice. I played, uh, I played tuba <laughs> in, uh, awesome. in school and I played tuba is like the simplest instrument. I played it very badly. <laughs> I played tuba in school. I played sousaphone in marching band. Um, Amazing. Which, you know, it was the only way to get seen because I'm I'm five and a half feet tall. I'm a, quite a short guy. and But a tuba, a sousaphone, yeah, that stands out, right? Yeah. If you want to be noticeable, noticeable, carry a giant, shiny brass instrument. Yeah, that's how you do it. Not quiet either. But you no, <laughs> the one that just goes blah all the time. <laughs> oh, come on. You spend all your time going being the tuber is the best. Come on. Oh, man. I did. Uh, there were aspects I loved about it, but I do wish that I had had that ability to actually be good at it. Like, uh, and and I I don't even say that from a talent aspect from but from a I wish I had known to learn to be good at it which I never did. I I really had the drive like I have always loved music and I've always loved performance and I started really young in a family like I was really self-taught but I was lucky because my my family was musical and the recorder is a good instrument to play together so we would play sort of three four part music together and it was a way that we as a family spent time together. Which was, which was really, really lovely. Like, I, I feel so lucky that I had that. But the other thing is that I'm just, we were talking about this, like, manicness that creatives have. I just, I don't like being bad at stuff. I just, I ha- if, if something is not good, if something is not right, it will drive me crazy. And I think that that was, for me, the, the, the spur with, with music was just like, I love this. I know what it wa- I want it to sound like. It doesn't sound like that yet. So I'm going to practice for four more hours. And again, like that's really stood me in good stead for writing because right now I run a company full time. So I am an evening and weekend writer, um, which means it gets to the end of the day. And I'm like, well, I have to do draft three of this novel. It has to go out. I have to get it done. And there's no external pressure, but there's internal pressure because it's not done yet. And I want it done and it's not right yet. So I want it right. And that can make me a bit difficult sometimes. I'm not difficult to work with, but I'm, I'm very specific about how things need to be. My poor marketing, uh, one of our marketing specialists uh, recently edited a tutorial that we just released for uh, discussion boards, which are like forums for your world. They're really cool. You can do play by post with them. They're awesome. We've, I recorded the, the tutorial and I gave him all the footage and I was like, here's the script and here's everything. And this is how it has to be. And he made it. And it was almost perfect. Almost. But I had like 97 notes for him. <laughs> and I saw his face fall and I was like, I'm so sorry. But this is my business. It's my baby. It can't just be almost there. It has to be right because this is this is our business card. If somebody sees this, it's important that it's it's good. So then he had to make like all the tiny little changes like this. This element didn't fade with the other element. And, you know, I say I talk about this feature here, but you show it two seconds later. So from a like didactics point, that's not really clear. Um, and there were all really tiny changes because he is incredibly good at what he does. And this was the first tutorial he'd done for us. But still, like, it has to be right. And I think that that, that can stand you in really good stead, as particularly with motivation. But it can also be a really dangerous thing because you always risk not getting things out. Like, it's, it's a pro and a con. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I kind of have uh I spent the first few years of my career very much trying to scrounge for like things little things like like business cards for instance. You know, like trying to scrounge, trying to call in favors, trying to use people that were very very cheap, you know, things like that. And so I got very good at kind of looking at things and going, "Okay, good enough. I'm I'm working on a tight string here." Yeah. But I noticed that the moment I started paying real professionals to do things, I became extremely particular, like just, okay, this is my vision. I am paying you to make that vision happen. We are doing it exactly the way I want. And uh, I don't know, I try not to be a dick about it, right? Like, of course. But, uh, but there is like that kind of switch over of like, okay, I've got a vision for something and I want it to be how it is, right? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, but th- and that can be very hard. Like communicating that vision is actually another skill set. Uh, that yeah. lots of people don't have and lots of people, you know, kind of need to develop better. Yeah. I mean, like communication, and I'm learning this now I have a team, communication is so important. Um, and it sounds like such a silly, facile thing to say. Communication is important. Like, how, how dumb. But on the other hand, like, it's really important that people understand exactly what you mean and also that they get exactly the spirit of what you mean. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I have 67 things that need to be fixed in this tutorial, but I'm really happy with it overall. You've done a really good job. I just want wanted the extra step. Now that was even worse because I used to do all the video editing for the tutorials. So I was like, it has to be this way. But um, yeah, like, you know, communicating with other people who you're working with, you know, really, really getting your vision ap- across, particularly when there, there aren't enough words somehow always, there aren't specific words or you, like if you're working with a designer, for example, you might have different understanding of, of terminology mm-hmm. um, and this kind of thing as well. So that can make it, that can make it really challenging. Ooh, terminology is one that I, I struggle with, like knowing the right words to tell someone who works in a related, but quite different field. That's tough. Oh, it's really hard. It's really hard. And you know, you, I, I spend an awful lot of time being like, right, you are the professional and I am not the professional, but this is what I want. <laughs> yeah. I I remember uh, my my final year of high school, my senior year, I, I got into the one college I applied for and it was a fair, reasonably prestigious college. Um, and it was, uh, and I, I went to my English teacher and I went, I don't know how I got in. Like, this is pure luck, right? I have I have solid ACTs. Like my testing scores were very good. Uh, they but they weren't top. They weren't like the top of the marks, but they were very good. Yeah. Uh, but my grades were m- not good for any of this stuff. And I kind of went, what it, what was it? And she just looked at me. She's like, your essay, obviously. Like people are generally at your age, at eighteen, aren't good at stringing sentences together. And the fact that you were good at stringing sentences together, you would be shocked at how much admissions offices look at that and say, okay, that is like a, a big thing to consider. And I, yeah, it's, it's weird to think about that because, I mean, for me, it, it comes so easily, uh, but, it's, but there's so many other aspects like actually being in class that, I, that doesn't come easily to me that I, I, I look at it and go, oh, writing an essay writing you know something that's not a big deal at all i'm sure everyone can do it but they really can't yeah no absolutely can i tell you something really interesting this is also cultural oh yeah yeah so my mom is uh the dean of studies at a university and she always tells me that essentially americans are really good 
at talking. Mm -hmm. they, they always, the American students they get, they, they can talk the talk. You ask them to give a presentation. It's the best presentation. They're great. They're really comfortable asking questions in class. No issues with that, which is a real, how do you say, a, a real contrast to the, the British students who, who just struggle terribly and they, they can't perform and they can't stand up and speak. and they, they, they feel very awkward asking questions. But then in the written assignments, a lot of the Americans really struggle and it's the British students who do better, funnily enough. So there's a real dichotomy in the way that Americans and British people approach education, which means that, you know, a lot of a lot of British people, when they have to speak publicly, they they really struggle, even professionally. Like I, I see this with people my age. I see this with people who talk for a living and they still struggle. And yet you ask them to write something down and it's, it's the most eloquent thing you've ever seen. And, you know, I've seen really a flip in, in Americans. Uh, people I work with in the business, you know, again, people who talk for a living and write for a living. There's a real like disparity between those skills across the cultures. Very interesting. Yeah, that that really is. I uh, I definitely I relate more to the British side of that because mm. I was always such a shy kid. You know, like I could I could write whatever, but man, the moment anyone looked at me, like I just fell apart, just sweating profusely, shaking, like just unable to function as a human being the moment someone looked at me uh public speaking was something public speaking is such a stupid word like you know when you when you're speaking it's not in your head right but it's something that i really had to, to learn yeah to when i did world anvil funnily enough because you know when i was performing i would give you know i did a lot of sort of lecture recitals where i'd be like the next piece was written by this guy and here's a funny anecdote and here you go and it's about this and here's a funny anecdote about that now let's hear the music um, and that was absolutely fine because I knew exactly what I was talking about and I, I prepared it really carefully. But the minute I had to talk off piste, I'd just crumble. I wouldn't be able to get to the end of a sentence. And it took me a really long time to learn to do that. And I really had to watch other people. So I have a friend called Guy Sklanders, who is uh, How to Be a Great GM on YouTube. And he has the amazing ability to just free talk, free lecture. He always sounds intelligent. His sentences are constructed, even though they're verbal. I don't know how he does it, except now I do. He speaks slowly. Oh, man. Slowing down. Uh, just he just slows down, and then he sounds like the most eloquent man in the universe. It's it, it's crazy. It's that it is that is and that is such a skill because especially if you are a little bit nervous, you talk faster, and then when you talk faster, your brain isn't keeping up with your lips, and so that happens to me constantly. Yeah, just like so, I end up repeating myself. I say the same words over and over again. I uh, I'm I'm like cycling through my own brain to try to figure out where that train of thought is actually going, and uh, and it's such a fascinating skill of being able to tell tell yourself, no, okay, we're gonna slow everything down. Yeah. We're going to think ahead of what is coming out of our mouths. You know, all that. No, it's brutal. And like, if you're a little bit nervous, it's hard. If you're a little bit excited about what you're talking about, which I always am then it's hard. But also I operate at like 125% of normal speed compared to other people. I just, I'm just a very upbeat person. And so like being able to modulate my speed to give my brain time to get to the end of the sentence before my freaking mouth does. Yeah, it, that was a whole new experience of learning. That was really interesting. And again, it was one of these things where I was like, I, I see other people are doing this. Clearly it is humanly possible. 
I need to figure out how this is possible. So I just I sat down, I nerded my way through it, I learned, and now I feel comfortable doing a podcast with Brian McClellan, even, you know, <laughs> getting to the end of sentences. It, it's crazy. And it's, again, it was just one of those things where I was like, clearly, clearly humans can do this. I'd better learn how. Right. Right. Oh, that's brilliant. It's it's, uh, it's such a great way to kind of approach life and learning. And I, I I hope that as I kind of continue to grow older and try to try to be a more interesting and rounded person that I can kind of try to try to take that on. Right. Like I, I always want to kind of I, I like being I, I don't like being the smartest person in a room because I like other people to be interesting to talk to and to listen to what they're saying and um, but sometimes I really have a, a hard time kind of grasping the information in a way that I'm able to recycle. Um, and I'd like to, I'd like to change that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody ever, nobody wants to be the smartest person in the room. Like life's too, life's boring I, when it's I, that way. I've met a few people that love that and it's, really? and they're, they're the ones you also don't want to be in a room with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're the, um, find the fire exits quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I <laughs> break glass in case of ego. I, I've I've kept you for quite a long time, so uh, let's wrap up. But I like to finish every one of these episodes by asking you what your f- what food you've recent recently eaten that blew your mind. Ooh, interesting. Um, so I love to cook. Mm-hmm. I love to cook. It's my one creative outlet that will never be professional, and I like it that way. Like I don't want to be a chef. I don't want to be a cook. I just want to make delicious things. So um, obviously, I work at home. One of the things that I excel at is food that has very small amounts of contact time. So I made roast chicken with roast potatoes and roast carrots and roast onion and roast whole garlic in a pan with orange juice and thyme and mustard. And then, so it takes, what, 10 minutes to throw that in a pan and walk away. Yeah. And then at the end, you pour all of the cooking juice and thicken it up with some, um, a little bit more orange juice and some flour. And then you have roast chicken with roast potatoes with this sort of beautiful vegetables, all, all, all with this amazing orange and mustard and thyme sauce that took 15 minutes of contact time. Oh, that's great. And a whole bunch of neglect. Man. So yeah, I had that recently. It was really insanely good. Um, big recommend. <laughs> Honestly, I you get when you talk to foodies, you have a lot of foodies will, who will just totally downplay chicken. They'll talk about, oh, chicken's just you know it's the garbage meat because it's doesn't have much flavor. I love roast chicken. Like chicken, oh. I love chicken because you can do so much with it. Um, it has versatility, and I I love that. And a good roast chicken is just oh, it's to die for. It's it's everything that is amazing about the most succulent chicken, but then everything it's like. Chicken skin is the bacon of meat. It's, <laughs> I mean, bacon is the bacon of meat, but you get where I'm going. Chicken skin is like second yeah, bacon, yeah. Um, which I feel should be a Hobbit thing, second bacon somehow. But um, <laughs> yeah, really crispy chicken skin with really succulent chicken with a really amazing flavorful sauce. Eh, it's amazing. It's it's too good. Oh, that's so good. Man, I might have to do that next weekend, actually. I've, I've never have done citrus with chicken before. But I have all those ingredients on hand. I, yeah. I should do that next weekend. It's really easy. And the orange and the mustard and the thyme mm-hmm. create something that's really unique and tangy and savory. 
so it's not too sweet because of the all of the, the sort of tangy and slightly spicy flavors. Yeah. But so it plays off really well against against the chicken. What do you use uh powdered mustard or uh liquid? Yeah, I use powdered mustard. You can use um I was going to say you can use um mustard like like pre-made mustard, yeah. but don't use American mustard. I mean, w- American mustard has its place. But it's very, very weak. I, I guess I don't actually know what the difference is. Because, I mean, like, like we get, you know, because we'll, we'll have, we have on hand just, like, yellow mustard for, you know, like, hot dogs and stuff in the summer. Yeah. But, you know, if we're actually cooking with mustard, it's either going to be powdered yeah. or, like, it's one of the little fancy tinned ones, like Grey Poupon like, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Dijon mustard. Yeah, Dijon mustard is good. I, love, I much prefer it. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so yeah, that's what I would use. I, honestly, I would use a powdered mustard because then you can control exactly what's in there. I do have that. And if you want the other things that are in mustard, like a little bit of vinegar, you can also just add that in. But mm-hmm. you get the acidities from the from the orange already. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm really obsessed with food. <laughs> no, no, I, I I can talk about food for quite a long time. I I do love food. I I yeah, I've been going through. I feel like a renaissance in my life that I grew up as an incredibly picky kid. I was always terrified of trying new foods. Um, I mm. just, I could not handle the idea of most anything. I just, I didn't like combining flavors. You know, if you handed me a sandwich yeah. when I was six, I would take the sandwich apart mm. and eat, 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 eat in each individual part of it alone because I liked the flavors of those parts. But the idea of eating like a bite of a sandwich that was all together freaked me out. And the last couple of years, I've been really trying to like kind of expand my palate and try to eat more interesting foods and things like that. And honestly, it feels like a renaissance in my entire life because I'm experiencing these foods, these combinations, even just using lots of onion and garlic and things like that, that most people go through their entire lives experiencing. And I'm only now doing it in my mid thirties. And I feel like it blows my mind. I'm like, this is insane and amazing. And I love it. I, uh, I mentioned that my, my parents are archeologists and uh, I spent every summer from the age of 11, I think, in Italy on an archeological excavation. And as part of that, we had these two Italian nonnas who would come and cook for the excavation because we're like 35 people. So they'd come in every evening and they'd cook. And then I would sit and watch them. And then gradually they'd start to explain how things were made. So I like I was taught to cook by two Italian grandmothers in Southern Italy. That is my like cooking DNA. So that's so cool. When you tell me no onions or garlic, I'm like, what? This is not food. Right. But <laughs> like, it's not food without flavor. It's I not know. food without chili and salt and spice and heat and acidity. Like that's, that's, I, I, I I'm there for that. <laughs> I see. And I know that now five years yeah. ago, I did not know that. Like it just, yeah. you know, and I like, I, of course I would eat spaghetti and things like that, but like Americanized Italian food. Yeah. Um, but man, like it, it does. It feels like my whole life's changed with like all these extra things going on in my, just in my basic dinner at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah food is, it's for me. Like if it's been a long day, that's what gets me through. You know, I'm like, I know what's for lunch. I can deal with the morning. I know what's for dinner. I can deal with the afternoon. Like it's really, for me, it's that little extra motivation where i'm like i know i have something delicious i've made something amazing so it's there and it's waiting for me i love it that was author and streamer janet forbes thanks again to janet for taking the time to chat you can find links to world anvil and janet's social media down in the show notes you can find me as always at brianmcclellan.com special thanks to james sutter for music and tom bishop for production If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, 
or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.